Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Kara Ongwili, the Associate Director at the Madison Center, and I'm joined today by Abe Goldberg, the Executive Director. Hi, Abe. Kara, it's good to see you. Again. <laughs> Once again, here we are from Fort Lauderdale at the <laughs> Civic Learning and Democratic Engagement National Meeting. And it's just been a wonderful experience so far. It really has. We are joined today by Dr. Ken Reardon, who's Professor of Urban Planning at the School for the Environment and the Director of Urban Planning and Community Development at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. His work revolves around research, teaching, and outreach in economically distressed rural and urban communities. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Reardon. Delighted to be here. Honored. So for our listeners, a lot of your work um, has also, you've been at the forefront um, in the field of participatory action research. And I wonder if you might just share with our listeners um, what participatory action research is, um, how you've seen it progress in the academy, um, and where you'd like to see this methodology go. Sure. I, when I started, this is my 40th year in the academy, so I'm a, uh, dating myself a bit. You know, participatory action research was really an emergent uh, alternative approach to doing uh, social science research, and that's really changed. And it's now, I would say, it's, it's the increasingly the preferred approach that people are taking to studying complex uh, human systems. And uh, it's, that's happened in a number of different locations. Um, in Asia and Africa, action research emerged in response to the failure of agricultural transfer research and programming by mostly Western universities going in, trying to impose industrial farming in these areas. Didn't work out very well. And residents of those areas began to resist outside researchers demanding to control their own data collection and analysis uh, process. Uh, secondly, in Europe, in the 19th, late 60s, early 70s, as they were beginning to lose its, their competitive place in the world, globalizing economy, uh, a number of labor management groups came together to use collaborative research to look at ways of enhancing productivity. And then the third place is in the, in the uh, following the aftermath of the failure of urban renewal as an urban revitalization strategy in the U.S., low-income communities, particularly of color, began to demand full participation at every step of the research process as they might say, from Jump Street, from identifying the issues to be looked at, to prioritizing them, to developing the research design, to creating the instruments used to collect the data, to be involved in the analysis of the data and the development of policy prescriptions coming out of that. And increasingly, in these three different areas of the world, folks who were often the object of university study began to say, if we're not involved, as equal partners, as co-investigators at every step of the research process, we're not interested in participating. And so increasingly, university-based researchers and uh, faculty or researchers involved in independent research centers are finding that a collaborative or participatory approach in which they are co-investigating with the folks most deeply affected by a policy issue uh, is the only way they can proceed to do their work. Otherwise, they can't get the cooperation of the folks who are ultimately the source of a lot of the most important knowledge and insights. 
your background being in urban planning and community development is, is really interesting to me. I, I also have um, an academic interest in, in urban design and the built environment. And, and being here at this conference focused on, on democratic engagement, I'm wondering if you can speak to the role of urban design in the built environment to create a more vibrant democracy, or perhaps in what ways um, can the built environment maybe inhibit a more vibrant democracy? I mean, historically, going back to Greek cities, Roman cities, we divided residential areas on the basis of occupational status or class as a way of managing uh, local populations and sort of a top-down uh, approach to governance. Over time, as you move into the Renaissance and the modern era, people are less willing to be treated as objects of someone else's policy making and began to challenge you know, the use of physical design to separate and to segregate communities as a way of managing them and began to uh, uh, move, migrate into areas that weren't, quote, designed for them to challenge the design of uh, um, you know, the architects of the day, you know, here in the United States, the urban renewal program deeply influenced by the work of Corbusier, the tower in the park, you know, that housing was nothing more than machines for living. And we created all over the United States public housing complexes, tall multi-story buildings with big outdoor open spaces, which turned out in very quick order to be largely unlivable for people who found that if they couldn't be close to their kids playing outside of a tall tower, they were nervous about having them be in an urban environment without close supervision. So they weren't too eager to move into the tower. And uh, also the maintenance levels of these projects weren't kept up. So increasingly, um, you find poor and working class communities sort of challenging dominant approaches to placemaking and increasingly demanding a voice in the process. I would say that uh, landscape architecture and planning have been a little bit more open to that critique and have been a bit more willing to collaborate with the ultimate users of a space in the creation of the design and the way it's going to be managed or governed. Architecture still, I think, is a little bit resistant to that notion. They view themselves as the, you know, the, the queen of the arts and um, that they know better and uh, that uh, they're creating a piece of art with less and less attention, I think, to the functionality of the space, its usability, and the impact on um, who is most best served or who benefits or who pays the cost of uh, the designs that are um, created. So uh, we're inter moving into an interesting period. And you know, currently there is a movement in a lot of distressed rural and urban communities who've been waiting for good uh, planning and design solutions to come to their neighborhoods to engage in their own planning and design. So you have the whole movement of what's called tactical urbanism. Don't wait for City Hall to invite you to a meeting. Gather your neighbors, identify what's working best in your area, what's working not so well, and then what can you do with the resources at hand this week, this month, this year to address it with modest resources and building upon small successes, then use that to get other allies to talk about larger, uh, higher scale, more dramatic interventions. I worked in Memphis the last 10 years before I went, came to the University of Massachusetts in Boston. And there, there was an old industrial area that had largely emptied out. It was called Broadway. 
and was really suffering the residential area around this commercial space, which used to be surrounded by vibrant industry. Uh, those industries had left, the commercial area was largely vacant, and the residential families um, who were working class, the only real wealth they had was their home, and they were seeing the value sink year after year. It wasn't on the city's uh, priority list. They were doing the waterfront, and the downtown, and the convention district, and the airport. So they would have been waited like, waiting like Jews in the desert for you know, uh, a decade or more before the city would show up. So a group of uh, young planners and designers did some door knocking with local residents, convened a series of participatory uh, charrettes, and they decided to do a 72-hour makeover of this commercial strip, five blocks long. And what did they do? They went to the commercial building owners, they gave them permission to access these vacant commercial buildings. They went to the local utility who wanted to see the area redeveloped. They were willing to turn the electricity on at the utility's expense so they could light and provide services to those buildings. They went around the entire region and recruited the hippest restaurants, breweries, uh, boutiques, eateries, craft shops, just fun small businesses that really celebrated what was unique about the Memphis Sound, Memphis uh, uh, gastronomical uh, contributions, food, art, etc. And in the course of a weekend, uh, they, they put in bike paths, they mm -hmm. went and got gas lamps from a, a cooperative uh, landscape company, and they put the gas lamps in the middle of the street. It looked like New Orleans. They mm -hmm. painted the side of the building. There was a big vacant space. They did 18 hours a day for three days, cultural programming on environmental education, good eating, local foods, the history of Memphis music, and of course they've got great music. And in the course of three days, over 100,000 people in the wow. metro Memphis area went to a part of town that everybody had been telling their friends, oh, if you're going downtown, avoid Broadway. And the, the branding of this weekend was really sort of slightly sexist but tongue-in-cheek and sort of funny it was called put a new face on an old broad and people were curious about this and they came in droves within a year 14 of the properties that had been vacant were moved into full-time rent up they've been completely redeveloped three years later there's not a single vacant building and the working class folks who were around this area who were looking at this main street that had really dried up are seeing their property values go up. And so working class people, the only real asset they have at the end of their working years is that house. All of a sudden, that's being recovered. And this was done not only without the uh, permission of City Hall. When City Hall found out about it, you know, when you have kids on the middle of the street painting green paths for bike paths that have never been programmed by the city, the building's uh, inspection department will show up, and they did, and they started measuring was the width right, they did angular parking, was the angle right, they ticketed them several times. But after the success of this, the city then adopts the tactical urbanism program, and now it's a mayoral initiative that they have carried out and replicated in five other neighborhoods. So design matters, it can open up opportunities, it can celebrate unique history and cultural contributions, or can isolate and exclude people. It depends on what your value orientation is.
So I, I had an opportunity to meet um, a gentleman named Jason Roberts um, out of Oak Park, Texas. I think it was Oak Park. It was, uh, it was um, in the Dallas area who started what was called the Better Block Project, where they would go and, and, and find sort of these, using his terminology, the bad part of town, and, and literally over a weekend um, develop these types of things. But what's really heartening about what you just shared um, it isn't just the scale of it, and, and, and certainly, surely, what 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 added to some to 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 a great degree to the civic pride of the people that were living there, but the fact that that really what this did was it seems like it raised awareness up to the policymakers, and it was the policymakers who adapted to what was going on, right. sort of on at the street level, uh, where, where the people were just demanding something better. And it's interesting, you know, the, uh, the city planners, and I, I'm, of course, a professional city planner, and I pride myself in uh, that uh, occupation. Um, there was a vacant brewery built in 1884 on the waterfront in the heart of the downtown. And the city had tried every conceivable strategy, uh, federal and state program, to reactivate this for mixed-use development. Finally, they were about ready to put it out for demolition which was going to be a huge expense because this building was built to withstand three or four nuclear events and uh, six stories, an amazing structure. And finally they said, gee, these young folks made you know, Broadway come alive. Nobody thought it would ever have a pulse again. You know, what, would it, what would be wrong with giving these kids 90 days to see what they could do with the brewery? And so the same team buoyed from the experience on, lower broad, uh, on Broadway came down and they put in music programming, mm. food, food trucks, uh, cool lighting, uh, hologram art exhibits thrown up on vacant buildings, and it was packed for 90 days. The city then ins decided, instead of putting out an RFP, for the demolition of one of the great pieces of industrial architecture in the downtown Memphis, they put it out for redevelopment as a mixed-use project, and it now, has some of the most uh, attractive and breathtaking uh, condos, also affordable housing, a mix of market rate commercial spaces, but also a set aside for nonprofits that are doing good community development work who are getting cross-subsidized by the project. And this is a building that everybody in the city had looked at and really thrown their hands up. So this approach of starting small, Broadway, then moving down to this the brewery district right on the waterfront has really gotten some momentum. And I think the trick is, is really um, picking your projects, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, under-promising and over-delivering. So you're in a neighborhood that's been ignored for a long time, pick one block, do it. Extraordinary job, clean it up, paint it up, do landscaping, which is inexpensive, but yet it presents a dramatic change in people's perception of what the area is. Use the momentum that is created by the excitement people have to see an area that's been largely neglected by the public and private sector for 50 years, have one block come alive, and then you begin to see allies come forth. So the story I told yesterday at uh, the opening session was about eight black women from East St. Louis, Illinois, who walked their babies, grandbabies, to a daycare center uh, several blocks from the public housing complex. And there were three arsoned uh, brick buildings, three stories tall, that their kids had to pass by every day to go to daycare at a settlement house. 
it was so frightening to the kids, little three, four, and five-year-olds, that they would always demand to be walked on the other side of the street. They thought they were haunted houses. And these women just said, you know, this is unacceptable. And they got on a bus, went to the downtown of East St. Louis, got on a second bus out to the county seat to find out who owns these buildings and who was it. It was the county itself because the owners had walked away for back taxes. They went to the land disposition committee of the county, 29 white guys from suburban St. Clair County, these eight black women, and said, give us site control, and within a year we'll transform these three blighted properties into a drop-dead beautiful playground. These guys were bewildered. These women from public housing, are any of you architects? No. Are any of you landscape architects? No. Are any of you engineers? No. One woman said, you know, most of us haven't even graduated high school, but we think we can do this. And I think they had no plans for the property. They weren't getting any tax revenue. So they took a, a, you know, a gamble. And these women went back, mobilized through four black churches, 100 volunteers, and they took down these three three-story brick buildings by hand, brick by brick, stick by stick. They saved every copper pipe. They saved all the porcelain fixtures from these 1890 buildings, all the sliding doors, all the window frames. Then they got a couple of guys from the neighborhood to take it over to St. Louis to the architectural district, Cher Cherokee Street. We call it the Creeping Quiche District. They sold it for $12,000. They wanted to do a really stunningly beautiful, uplifting space for children and their mothers. And they knew $12,000 was not going to do it, even though they were all going to volunteer. It was going to be sweat equity. So for a year, a year, they held a Friday night event called Don't Cook Tonight, Call Ciola. And they did catfish and chicken fried dinners for $7.25. And several thousand dinners later, they had amassed 20,000. But they knew that that wasn't enough to do what they wanted to do with this site. So not only would they remove blight, but they would create a spot of beauty that would be uplifting, that would be a transformative space, a peaceful space for these kids. And so they looked across the Mississippi River to St. Louis, which is on the other side, another state in Missouri. They looked on the corporate skyline, and there's Ralston Purina. And they started laughing. They all had dogs and cats. Most of them fed them Ralston Purina. They went over to the corporate headquarters with pictures of their dogs <laughs> and coupons from their last Ralston uh, purchase and said, here's what we've done. And these corporate leaders, blown away by what they had done, matched their fundraising effort, and in the next three months, they mobilized 150 residents to transform this space into the first new, high-quality public space in a city that hadn't seen a new park in 50 years. Buoyed by that, they turned to each other and said, hey, how hard was this, right? We took care of three lots. There's 40 to a block. There's 88 blocks to our neighborhood, and then there's only 21 neighborhoods in our city. We can turn this whole thing around. And right on the spot, the reflection upon creating Suge Park was to commit to the creation of a community development corporation, which over the subsequent 10 years was responsible for cleaning dozens of lots, building uh, more than six best pocket parks with kids as the designers, getting kids together in their school, having them draw their drop-dead beautiful playground image, put them up in the school, give the kids smiling face decals so they could vote for the things they wanted, skull and crossbones for the thing that was too scary that they didn't want in the park. They built parks and then they looked around at the housing that was deteriorating 
and they first had so little resources, it was only the university donating paint. Our colors were orange and blue. I was at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and the university physical plant donated paint. We painted 75 houses blue, and we did small cosmetic repairs around the parks to keep these buildings from deteriorating into uninhabitable spaces. That came to the attention of the state treasurer, who called me up and said, hey, listen, we're collecting millions of dollars in state taxes for St. Clair County, and local banks compete for the right to have those deposits because the state requirement of interest on that money is so low. How about if we give you the opportunity to have the local banks compete for the right for the money and the difference between the low interest rate the state requires and whatever you can squeeze out of the local banking community will let you keep so you can purchase materials to do not only paint up but moderate rehab. So we were able to do this what's called link deposit program. From there, HUD called us up and said, hey, we have the new home program. This is under President Clinton. And uh, they offered us $250,000, the first of what ended up being uh, eight or nine uh, home grants. And we were able to then do moderate rehab. So it's like a set of stairs, starting small, that first cleanup activity on one main street, then the creation of the park with the three houses, moving up to the paint up, scrape up, then the moderate rehab. And then we got to the point where Habitat for Humanity came to us and said, you're doing a great job rehabbing all these houses, but there are all these vacant homes as industry left, houses, you know, arson damage, or perhaps they fell into disrepair. And they said, we'd like to help you build new housing. And we said, well, that's great. But the Habitat model is we take all the labor costs out of the housing by volunteer effort, but all the materials have to be purchased and rolled into a mortgage. Our people were too poor to pay that mortgage. And at that time, this is a while ago, Habitat had a policy against additional grants to write down the mortgage costs. They thought people should have full skin in the game. So the Habitat director said, I understand that none of your people could benefit from our model. And he had his Habitat hat on. And he turned his hat around and said, how about if we create a new group called the Faith-Based Housing Initiative? It'll be all of us in Habitat, except we'll do this on Fridays when we're not working for Habitat. And we were able to enlist them as our partners. And we got the students at the university, who by this time, the numbers of students participating skyrocketed because people felt um, it was such an honor to work with these extraordinary black church women and doing projects that were making a difference in that community. So our studio classes, in architecture, landscape, and planning were oversubscribed. And uh, we started using university uh, a site to raise funds to pay for additional materials for habitat houses. And we created a, a tradition between uh, final exams and graduation, eight days. We would take the entire student body and faculty of the College of Fine and Applied Arts to East St. Louis. We'd sleep on the floor of a very large settlement house gym and in five days, we would build five to seven houses from scratch in a blitz build. That was moving along. And then the last thing that happened, and I will shut up because I know you asked me the last question 20 minutes ago, uh, was we got a phone call. This is moving forward early in the morning from a leader in East St. Louis and said, we hear through the grapevine that the federal government is contemplating building a light rail uh, system from St. Louis Airport in Missouri to the downtown where the arch is, the Gateway Arch, and where the casinos are, and where all the, you know, Anheuser-Busch Stadium is, and Anheuser-Busch Beer Company, et cetera. Um, 
but they're not planning to go across the river to serve the other half of the metro area, which is East St. Louis and its surrounding suburban communities, African-American, lower income. And they said, do you think the university could help us make the argument that if we had an extension of the light rail across the river into East St. Louis, when the trains come in from the airport to the downtown, they would be going back empty to the airport to pick up the next crew until the end of the day. It would be one way. If we extended into East St. Louis, the trains could come into this very poor city where 80% of the families had no private transportation and had a very rudimentary and challenged public transit system. They could pick up East St. Louis folks and bring them to living wage jobs out at the airport. So we did a campaign called The 101 Reasons. There was a Disney film at this time, why the regional transportation uh, plan is unfair. And we mobilized through the help of the local community, 300 folks. We got the mayor of East St. Louis, the mayor of St. Louis, the head of the Metropolitan Planning Agency, which controls the regional transportation policy. And through pressure and through good, compelling research, we got them to extend a light rail line 11 miles into the poorest census tracts. As we did that, we applied for funding through the Illinois Industrial Development Authority, and we used that money to buy checkerboard parcels around all the proposed rail stations. So when the line got built, no developer could assemble the land without negotiating with our East St. Louis neighbors. So the same group that started reclaiming those three arson-damaged properties, within 10 years, were responsible for extending a rail line 11 miles, which made possible the first mixed income, mixed finance development at scale in East St. Louis in 50 years. And we were able to recruit the company McCormick Baron Salazar for an extraordinary development called the Parsons Place Project. So there is an example of resident-led planning and development, starting small, and then building upon the momentum of small successes to take on increasingly large scale, highly impactful economic and community development projects. In a small town, that model, which we call empowerment planning, it integrates participatory action research, which we found was necessary. You got a better analysis of the problem, a clear focus on what the possibilities were, but it wasn't necessarily able to bring together the full range of stakeholders to put political pressure behind the requests. And so even though we did these award-winning plans early on, using PAR alone, they never got funded. So we integrated PAR with old-fashioned Alinsky organizing and then ultimately with Paolo Freire popular education. And that model called empowerment planning, which seeks to affect the fundamental investment decisions in public and private institutions by building the capacity of poor people's organizations through participatory planning and design is the model that's being replicated in other cities throughout the U.S. and Europe from East St. Louis. It's, it's such a remarkable story. And um, one of the things that, that strikes me about it is it looks a lot more like an ideal for what our university community partnership should be. Uh, but it didn't just evolve that way, right? No. And, and so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the Ciola Davis non-colonial university community relationship accords. And, and also, you know, what, you know, how did that experience and others as you've moved on, um, you know, how has that affected what you're, 
your approach towards university community partnerships and what advice do you give for universities that really need to be rethinking what those relationships look like? Sure. Well, um, so how does a university uh, adopt a project 200 miles away? So when I got hired in Illinois and they said, hey, you're going to be involved in this project, I said, great, where is it? East St. Louis. I said, isn't that like 400 zip codes away? Yeah, it was 200 miles away. Why were we there? Well, the residents of East St. Louis, as they began to put these projects together, went to their state rep, who had just been appointed chair of the Higher Ed Finance Committee. And in 1987, when the president of the university, uh, Stanley Eikenberry III, you couldn't even make this up, it's like a Hollywood film, went down. And in Illinois, there's only twice during the year that the House and the Senate meet together. The governor gives the state of the state message. And because of the importance of the land-grant ideal and the history of the land-grant institution creating real opportunities for education and economic development for mostly farm families, the second time the Assembly and the Senate get together is when the president of the University of Illinois system comes to give the state of the land-grant university speech. It's a big deal. All the legislators, whether they went to the University of Illinois or not, wear orange and blue ties. This year, the president goes down to Springfield in his limousine, gets up, and he's about ready to deliver his speech. And the state representative from East St. Louis gets up, why that are young, the longest standing African-American woman in any Midwestern legislature. And she says in a very loud voice, as the new chair of the Higher Ed Finance Committee, we have no interest in what the University of Illinois is doing and wants from the state legislature until you can articulate for, to our satisfaction what your urban public service mission is in communities like East St. Louis. Snap, New York Minute, thanks for coming. She dismisses him. Hmm. Stanley Eikenberry goes back to the campus. He has to explain to the provost why there's no budget, to the deans why there's no resources, to the head football coach, how's the fighting a line I gotta play this fall? There's no money. And overnight, there's a $100,000 commitment to working in this place 200 miles away. So 87 to 1987 to 1990, faculty are strongly encouraged to do projects there. And they would uh, drive very quickly to the city, pick up an extension agent at the edge of the town, lock the van doors, drive through the neighborhoods at 70 miles an hour. Oh, there's a vacant lot. Maybe we could do something back on campus to reimagine that space. And so for three years, the university did 35 projects. And really, it was the stealth bomber approach to community-based research. Nobody even knew we were there. We were just meeting our obligation to the elected official. Finally, students organized a campus-wide boycott and said, we're not going to participate in this charade. Even driving through these neighborhoods at 70 miles an hour, we can see that there are extraordinary spots of renewal being supported by grassroots groups. Why aren't we stopping and asking these folks if they need a hand to get to the next level? And so the students pushed for a reimagination. They hired some new faculty. I was blessed enough to be one of those. I then went down, and I was told that they were doing work for three years down there. They'd spent $300,000 in this poor city. It's a small city. And so I interviewed 50 people, and I said, well, you know, uh, what do you think of the university's project in East St. Louis? And everybody I spoke to said, what project? They didn't even know we were there. And then I said a follow-up question. I said, well, what do you think about the idea of a community university uh, development partnership. And one woman, older African-American activist, 
asked me for my hand. I thought this was going really well. We were bonding, we were connecting, <laughs> and she started squeezing my very white Irish Catholic hand until it turned absolutely red. And she said, honey, the last damn thing we need is another U of I professor who looks just like you, holding my pink Caucasian hand, who's gonna come down here and tell us what any sixth grader in town already knows. So it was you know, dramatic. Finally, somebody told me that there was this group that had done this uh, re reclamation of the three arson buildings. And I said, well, maybe they're the folks. So I set up an appointment to meet these eight women who I came to quickly refer to as the blue-haired brigade. The youngest was maybe 55. The eldest was in their late 70s. And they described this amazing process of creating this park out of nothing, dismantling three three-story brick buildings by hand. You know what it takes to build a brick building. It takes even more energy to dismantle them so you could sell the parts. And they explained it. And I said, well, we would be honored to be your partner to begin moving towards some larger projects. And they said, OK, but we want to show you something first. And they brought out three milk cartons. And they put them on the table we were meeting at. One said 1960, 11 U of I plans, $575,000. They said, you got funded, your campus, a half a million dollars, 11 plans to study our problems and lay out what solutions were to move forward. In the 1970s, you, got, you did 26 plans, and you got paid several million dollars. In the 1980s, it became a cottage industry, basically using the troubling economic and demographic data to justify third-party funding. And the tragedy is all of this money was spent, 55% of it went right to the university and overhead to fund faculty summer salaries, student research, and it wouldn't be tragic, except there isn't a damn one of these recommendations in these 47 reports that have ever been implemented. So the bad news is you have used our community as an urban lab, and you know what it's like. If you're the mouse, it's a pretty painful experience. If you're the guy in the white coat holding the mouse, it's a little different experience. And so we're interested in working with you, but not in the old model. We have an alternative, and the alternative model has these five simple principles. We decide on the issues to be worked on, not you, not your dean, not your provost, not your third-party funders. Second, we want to be involved in every step of the research process so that each time we go through one of these planning design iterations, not only are your students learning how to do participatory planning and design and uh, community building, but we're learning. Third, our problems are 50 years in the making, and they're structural, and they're not going to be solved in three to five years. So we need a five-year commitment from you, because for us, it's a major uh, investment of our time to be working with the university. And so if you're not interested in that, thanks, but no thanks. Fourth, we know you're already thinking in the back of your mind, where are you going to get the money? Danforth Foundation, MacArthur Foundation, HUD, EPA, the State Department of Environmental Protection, housing, to, f to get the fund to extend the university's activities into our community. But we also have a major expense. When you get here, you're going to call us up to identify what projects need to be done. You're going to ask us to help give you entree to these folks. You're going to ask us to host community meetings to tell you what parts of the neighborhood are safe and not safe, to help you do the introduction to the local elected officials, that's at a significant cost to us. And so we want every external grant that you go for, we want there to be a commitment that the resources be split 50-50 between the university, 
and your community partner. That's what a partnership is all about. And the last thing, we've watched universities get hot and cold about working with low-income communities. We can't afford that. We need to build an institution out of these activities that will last into the future. And so we want your help in creating a community-based nonprofit citywide development corporation that can manage the implementation and the leadership development activities to make this happen. And so at that point, these eight women, led by Ciola Davis, their uh, proud founder, said, go home and think about it. This is a serious commitment. We don't want you to on the spot because the fall is coming and you need a partner. We've been waiting a long time for a serious, responsible, ethical ally. We can wait another year, two, or three. Go back to your campus and talk to your boss, talk to your provost, talk to your president. And so I went back to the campus. I made an appointment with uh, the dean of my college. And I said, I found an amazing group of women. And I described what they had been doing. My dean is a, a woman who was phenomenal. She said, they sound hellacious. And I said, that's the good news. They are hellacious. The bad news is that they're a lot more serious about this than we are. And I said, here are the five principles of engagement. And she looked at it and laughed. She said, obviously, they've worked with higher education before. And she asked me for their phone number. And from the dean's office, she called Ciola Davis and said, I'm signing your letter, your five points. And I want you to know, not only are we committed to the words on the paper, we're committed to the spirit of reciprocity, reciprocal learning, and shared uh, risk, investment, and vision. And that's how we got going. This is Dr. Ken Reardon from the University of Massachusetts, Boston. I'm listening to this, this story, and I'm thinking about how a freshly minted PhD that just finished their dissertation and has publication requirements for promotion and tenure um, encounters the, non, the Ciola Davis non-colonial university community relationship accord. Was that a tough pill to swallow? Well, it was clear that our university had had an extension effort, a serious effort in the county, which included East St. Louis as the largest municipality for decades. And there was little or no evidence of impact. And for three years, under the pressure of the state rep, we had this highly focused effort where dozens of faculty had gone down and there was no awareness that we were even in the city, let alone evidence of anything you might call social or physical or economic development. So it was clear that our model of doing work was uh, ineffective and we needed to try something different. And these folks had been doing this extraordinary work and I later found out that it actually began in 1965 and here it was 1990 when these young women were young mothers in public housing, watched on a grainy TV the coverage of the voter registration efforts in the South led by the great civil rights leader, Fannie Lou Hamer. And they said, if Fannie Lou Hamer could face up to dogs and Bull Connor and the entire apparatus of Jim Crow to create a democratic space in Ruleville, where many of them came from, 
They came up the Illinois Central Railroad from the south, and they got off at East St. Louis because that's the, the money they had. They couldn't make it to Chicago for the big industrial jobs. They got off in East St. Louis. Then why can't we take over our city, reclaim it? It had been mismanaged by a corrupt democratic machine for nearly 90 years, which had never lost a single municipal election. So they did this, all this economic development. There was a strong emphasis for every project, not only participatory research, reaching out to folks to get information, but the end of every contact with a local resident, a local business, a local institution leader, a pastor was, if you really care about this, will you come down and join the Emerson Park Development Corporation? It reminded me of the old Negro spiritual. You gotta go down to the river and be baptized by yourself, taken over by the the union movement, you gotta go down and join the union by yourself. So it's not enough that you care about this and it's not enough that you wanna see an improved public education system in the city. You have to be willing to show up, put your fanny in the seat and work with your brothers and sisters at the neighborhood level to create a broad base of nonpartisan political support. So as we began doing the work in each neighborhood, it was like putting pearls on a necklace. Neighborhood number one, small projects getting bigger, participation growing. Then we got invited to neighborhood number two. By the time we got to neighborhood six, we had a sufficient political base to actually challenge the local democratic machine on an electoral basis. And so I got invited down on a Sunday after five or six years uh, for a meeting. And the discussion was, was it time for this community development corporation to organize a parallel uh, political reform effort and run the most respected ministers, church elders in the city to take back the actual city council and mayoralty of the city, which had been under the thumb of the St. Clair County Democratic Organization. And I thought they were there, they invited me there to uh, be a consultant. You know, was this a good idea, we're a bad idea? And I said, well, listen, my experience in other cities is that if you're taking on a big machine like Harold Washington did in Chicago, you have to be ready to win. It's like boxing with Muhammad Ali. You can't go in there expecting to you know, do a couple of jabs and walk back to your corner. You're gonna hit him in the face and he is gonna send you out of the arena uh, you know, in a, in a rocket-like fashion. So I said, you know, I don't think we're ready. And they smiled. They said, we've already decided to do this. You're not here to be a consultant to us. You're here because we know you don't have tenure yet. <laughs> and we are going to take over the city council of this town, and we're going to run our own mayor, and we're going to throw the Democratic machine out the door, and they are the second most dependable sources of votes in the state of Illinois, Democratic machine, second only to the Daily Machine in Chicago. And if we do this, there are going to be a lot of people who are really angry at Springfield, and you don't have any job security. So what can we do as we're doing this nonpartisan political work to make sure our success doesn't result in your retirement. Extraordinary. That's how sophisticated. Yeah. And so it was a real partnership that developed over many years. And we made every conceivable error that we could have in the process. But the work was creating opportunities that residents valued. And so they held um, their tongue in many ways. And they would, after a meeting, would call me to the side and said, you know, perhaps it might have been better if you would do this or that. These are the elders of this community, Miss Davis. And uh, after five or six years, when we began a breakthrough on state funding and federal funding, right before the light rail project got approved, 
I mean, we were generating tens of millions of dollars of new funding for housing, economic development, uh, public amenities, cultural programs, youth development programs. We won every award for engaged scholarship in the plan at the Linton Award. We won the HUD, uh, you know, not HUD, UN uh, Habitat, uh, you know, best practice. We all went to Copenhagen and got up. I mean, we were just celebrated. At that very point, uh, I was, at, by that time, sort of the coordinator for urban planning. A colleague of mine was running it for architecture, another colleague from landscape. We were invited down on a Sunday. It seems like in East St. Louis, Sundays are the day the truth gets told. So we get invited to this meeting, and we walk in, and before we get inside, I noticed that the cars in the parking lot, I've been working there five or six years, I know everybody, everybody's car. I know all their dogs. We've door knocked their houses. We've sat in their living rooms. We've spent lots of time. We've been in their churches dozens of times. I said, gee, this is interesting. It's just not the Emerson Park neighborhood. This is every neighborhood we're working in. All of the leaders are here. So I thought, well, gee, we just gotten this big HUD grant for new housing. This is a party. They're gonna, you know, we're gonna be feted. We go in, there are three chairs in the center of a set of circles, concentric circles, with 80 community leaders. And I said to my two colleagues, I think I might have been wrong. I think we're gonna get our ass kicked uh, that this is a come to Jesus meeting. And my colleagues said, well, how could that be? Look at what's going on. They, you know, could, nothing's ever been more successful in this town than this. How could that possibly be? So we sit down and uh, uh, Sheila Davis pulls out an article, the first article we published together on empowerment planning. And she reads me the definition of, you know, affecting public and private investment through a comprehensive resident-led democratic approach to redistribute resources, et cetera. And she says, I'd like to know, uh, do you agree with this quote? Is this a good kind of planning or do you disagree? Is this a retrograde? Is this a bad kind of planning? And you know, I wrote it. So I, you know, not being a modest person, I said to her, I said, listen, I thought it was pretty good when I wrote it five years ago. And I think right now it sounds brilliant, just brilliant. And at that point she says, well, just when are you gonna get off your ass and do this kind of work? And I was totally dumbfounded. You know, we have this bottom-up planning, we're doing higher and higher level projects, more and more impactful, we're winning national, international awards. Neil Pierce from the Washington Post wrote an article about us that appeared in 200 metropolitan newspapers saying we were, as my niece would say, the bomb, that we were just rewriting community university engagement. And here are most critical partners, the people we most loved, respected, basically said, we were the princes with no clothes on. Mm -hmm. And they then went on, they saw how perplexed we were, also how livid I was as an assistant professor to putting all this time in, you know, doing reports that weren't gonna be counted for my promotion and tenure, were not refereed journal articles, but instead grant applications to HUD to house people who hadn't had decent housing in their life. And she said, uh, well, in your model, we have students and, fa uh, students and community residents coming together to do really complex economic and community development. And for us to pull it off, according to you, your students, graduate students, the smartest, most talented, most highly coveted graduate students in the Midwest, have to have 12 to 15 hours of advanced training in community economics, urban design, community planning, grassroots organizing, social media relations, organizational behavior, and we, the community partners in this equal relationship, are not given a single hour 
of training and education. She said, in your model, we're not the, even the tail on the dog. We're not even the flea hoping to land on the tail on the dog. We're the bicho hoping to land on the flea on the tail on the dog. She says, that's the bad news. You've reproduced a racist, sexist, and classist approach to community university partner. You're reinforcing a hierarchical and a colonial approach to knowledge generation, transmission, and application. That's the bad news. The good news is that, and I'll, I'll never forget this, it's just salvation is always available in the black community for people who are willing to humbly look at their practice and reflect on it in a critical way to find better, more just ways of uh, working. And so the bad news is you screwed up, buddy. The good news is that there's a path forward, and at that point, they brought out a poster from the great Civil Rights Education Center, Highlander, the Highlander Center for Citizen Education and Research, where all of the union organizers in the 1930s were trained by Miles Horton, the great popular educator who brought the Norwegian folk school tradition into the United States to Newmarket, Tennessee, all the unionization that happened in the mills came out of Highlander, and then when the Civil Rights Movement came along, it was there that Miles Horton worked with Bayard Rustin to develop the curriculum to train folks in nonviolent change. So we have this fairy tale about how the Montgomery bus boycott that one day Rosa Parks just didn't feel like going to the back of the bus after working as a seamstress in the downtown department store. Two years before, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, who was about ready to go to Montgomery, and then the next year was in Montgomery, and the head of the NAACP and the local HBCU spent two summers in Highlander being trained in nonviolent action. So they said, we want you to create a Highlander here in East St. Louis. Here are the topics that we think, as we're moving forward on the actual work that we're doing, that we need training in, community organizing, urban economics, nonprofit management, uh, uh, urban design, uh, you know, communications, leadership development, fundraising, grantsmanship. And so they identified 12 topics and they said, we want to create a school, a free academy for adults that will be a liberation school just like Highlander here in East St. Louis. And we, we want to call it the Neighborhood College. All the courses we'd like to teach will be co-taught by community leaders in partnership with a university faculty member. And that's our solution. Go home and think about it. <laughs> so we went home and we thought about it. And uh, so the next semester, I was up for tenure. My department head gave me a semester off to get some last minute articles because I didn't have the number of articles that they wanted. Instead, I was fooling around in East St. Louis doing this work. So I immediately took that time and worked with Ciola to craft the first course, which was on community organizing. And she and I were going to teach it together. And so. Uh, as I got down to the point working with her on the readings and what kind of examples we would use, et cetera, um, I had to make copies. And I'm thinking, these women we're working with, mostly women, were involved in the leadership of the East St. Louis Action Research Project. They're working full time. They're holding up their, their churches. They are the backbone of the volunteer groups in town, all the youth recreation leagues, et cetera. Uh, and they ha don't have cars. And on weekends, they have to take crappy buses out to the suburbs to do shopping, and they also have to do their kids' hair. Hair day in the African-American community is a very important thing. The barbershop and the beauty salon is that, and the church is where often people come and commune and share and reinforce each other and lift each other up. How are these people ever going to find two hours on a Saturday when they're already stretched 
to do a course in community organizing. Oh, ye of little faith, that was me. I made 12 copies. Drive down to meet Ciola at the local community college. In the classroom, I walk in, there are 38 folks in the room, mm -hmm. not 12. The class was designed two hours a week for eight weeks. It never lasted less than three and a half hours because people had a real need. Those topics they had identified were the topics they wanted to discuss and apply to their immediate political situation to move justice forward, the arc of the moral orders Dr. King talked about. And then in the sixth week, uh, these women said, we have so many more topics, and they came up with another list. Can we extend the course eight more weeks? <laughs> I've been teaching, by then I was teaching for 10 years. I had never, and I've been teaching for 40 net years now, and I've taught some good courses. Nobody has ever demanded doubling the length of the semester because they had such an important reason to know. And I'm gonna wrap up on this. Uh, so we did this course. The third week, two beautiful young African-American guys show up in suits. No one was wearing suits on the Saturday morning. And uh, tradition was we always had people introduce themselves. And so when these two kids came in, I said, hey, why don't you share who you are and why you're here? And the one guy smirked and said, well, uh, my name's John. I said, but I tell you why I'm here. I'm not sure you're gonna be so welcoming. So I said, well, try us. He says, well, we work in City Hall. And, uh, and down in City Hall, they're referring to this as the Saturday Bolshevik brunch uh, cabal. And we were sent here to take notes and bring back a report to the city manager and mayor. And I laughed. And then one of the senior leaders, a guy named Richard Suttle, a rem remarkable um, Marine Corps vet, got up and said, you guys must have really screwed up at City Hall that you're sent on Saturday for like detention to hang out with us. And he went and gave him a big hug. He said, sit down, young man, relax, take those ties off. And they stayed the entire semester. Uh, at the end of each year, something that we did which became really transformative is that we inv would invite all of the community leaders, all the graduate students who were working as graduate assistants and all the faculty to a Catholic retreat center, Our Lady of the Snow in Cahokia, um, about a half hour outside of town. And we would do a two-day retreat evaluating first how the neighborhood groups which had five-year development plans they were working on, what the progress was on that, and then in the afternoon, they would evaluate the university using uh, uh, great uh, scoring cards, A through F. What was our contribution to community organizing, leadership development, technical planning, design? And we got a lot of Fs, I can tell you. And that was a way of getting real feedback from our community. The next day, we would ask them to brainstorm blue sky like President Obama used to have us do. What are the projects that are the next level of work to really continue turning the 800-foot oil tanker around, and they would generate a long list. And then they would sit down, and we would give them the budget of what we had that year, and they would have a sense that 12 or 13 of these we could do. Occasionally, they would want to do a 14th and 15th, and we began to invite our funders, and they would sit through this process as well. And it often came to the point, if they wanted a couple more projects than we could fund out of the university budget, with our complimentary third-party funding. They would work with our funders to get the additional money. Uh, the 10th year, we did a bigger evaluation, and I just want to close with this. And we asked people, you know, what, what's the most important thing that the university project has contributed to your ongoing community development work? It was almost unanimous. The neighborhood college, mm -hmm. this adult ed, popular education program. And uh, the most touching, most poignant moment 
in a, in a, in a ten-year period of lots of touching and poignant moments, was an 80-year-old black woman got up and said, uh, holding the reader, the handout with the articles from that first class with bobby pins and paper clips, underlined lots of, and they referred to this guide of direct action organizing of how to build nonpartisan power to affect decisions as the book. It wasn't the good book, the Bible, but it was the other book that you needed. And this woman said, as a woman who grew up in just outside of rural Mississippi, I never imagined I'd go to college. Mm. When I made the trek to East St. Louis, I prayed my daughter would go to college. Sadly, that didn't happen. And then I prayed that my granddaughter would go, and she wasn't able to go either. So do you know what it means to me to have had a chance to go to college? holding this book. So for me, as a faculty member involved in um, engaged scholarship and public scholarship, to me, that's the land-grant hope that, you know, Senator Morrill hoped we could use the power of a public university yeah. to lift people's efforts up by complementing their local knowledge with our expert knowledge in a reciprocal learning process uh, to make a difference. And so, in a long career, I think of all the wonderful moments and all the nice uh, recognition. That, to me, was the most significant uh, moment of recognition as a, as a teacher and a fellow learner, that woman's observation. And that's the way people felt about it. ask all of our guests one final question. What would you do to strengthen our democracy? I would encourage young scholars to uh, take the time as they do this difficult work to um, save some time with their community partners to document it mm -hmm. and to create the history that now doesn't exist in the major libraries and university curricula. The story of you know, organic intellectuals, as Gramsci talked about it, doing the impossible with nearly nothing um, at the grassroots. And we think about major reform movements in this country, and we, you know, in service learning, we think the university has been a major, well, yes, it's changed many lives. But if you look at the most significant advances for social justice, it's come out of the hard, courageous, grassroots efforts of people who've largely been ignored and whose story often doesn't get told. So I was there from 1990 to 2000 every day. I maintained an involvement in the project. When I left, these women said, uh, have you gotten all your notes? Is there gonna be a book about this? And I, I said, I assured them there was. I was on sabbatic, I went to Cornell. I wrote a history of the East St. Louis project, but I got caught up in other things and administrative duties and never finished it. So last year, on the 50th anniversary of Catherine Dunham's uh, uh, reappearance in East St. Louis as a major force for change, I gave a little talk at the Dunham Museum, and three of the original eight women, the Blue Haired Brigade, came to my talk. And on the way out the door, they grabbed me and they said, Ken, nice talk. Where's the book? Where's our book? So last year, I uh, went back to uh, UMass, uh, UMass Boston, where I'm now working, and dusted this off and finally have made good on my commitment to them. 
to tell their story as best I could of these eight sisters living in the first publicly funded public housing project in the state of Illinois, the Sam Gompers home, and how they, watching Fannie Lou Hamer on a grainy black and white TV in 1964, decided to turn their city around. And it's just been a huge privilege and honor to be a small player in that uh, story and to have a chance to be the scribe. So that book is coming out um, August 1st. Called Building Bridges, Forging Community University Partnerships That Work, Lessons from East St. Louis. Who's the publisher? It's Social Policy Press out of New Orleans, Louisiana. Well, we will definitely keep our eyes open for the book. And I want to tell you what an honor it is to be in this conversation with you, sharing this space with you as we talk about strengthening our democracy. It's inspiring. I'm honored. Honored. Thank, Thank you, you so very much. much. Thank you so much. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by the talented and tenacious Leah Jackson, a senior in the School of Media Arts and Design at James Madison University. Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, director of digital marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the Madison Center online at jmu.edu civic. Until next time. <laughs>